Hi, this is the Bring a Brick podcast, interviewing professionals from around the world who use improvisation in their work and in their life. I'm your host, John Cooper. Okay, my guest for this show is Gillian Hatcher. Gillian is a research associate with the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, working in the design, manufacture and engineering department. Uh, And she's part of a team exploring the use of humour in the design process. And as well as that, you are are a comic book writer and artist. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep, so, right. so a double whammy of stuff. So, hello, Jill. Can you just introduce yourself in a in a bit more of an erudite way than I just have? Just explain who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So, um, being a research associate at a university basically means that um, I dedicate my full time work to working on a specific research project, which in my case is this one, looking at how humour can be used to help designers generate more creative ideas. So I've been working on this project now for a year. Um, my own background is I studied product design and I did my PhD in more sort of simple design, eco-design type stuff. But as you said, I've always been living this sort of double life as a cartoonist. So I've always been really interested in humour and comedy. So when this project came up, I sort of latched onto it and got really excited by it. So I was really glad when I got the chance to work on it full time. So, um, so yeah, I've been working on it for a year. There's a connection between these two things Sorry? then. There's a connection between these two things, your kind of your comic book stuff and, and the design creative stuff. I think so. I think so. I mean, I think that's kind of what it's what interested me in the project. I think it's why I got brought on as well, because I've kind of got that unusual link between obviously uh, comics is quite different from improv, but I've got that interest in humour and um, creating sort of comedic content and stuff, but then I've also got the sort of research background in product design as well. So I guess it's kind of an unusual combination to have. Yeah, yeah, it it it, it is, it is. But it's kind of like you know, every everything connects up to a point. I think. So how did you how did you come to find the improv? How were you? How did within the did you start doing the research and then find that improv was a tool for it, or did the two both come together naturally? Uh, I would say they, they did come together naturally, but it didn't start out that way. I mean, the overall brief for this project was very broad, and it was just aspects of humour or constructs of constructs of humour which could possibly be integrated into the design process in some sort of creative way. So it was completely open. And I have to be honest, before starting the project, I only had a very basic understanding of improv. I was aware of what it was and you know I was aware that a lot of like really successful comedians particularly in the US had come up through improv training um, but I didn't know very much about the sort of theory behind it or the thinking behind it and to be honest a lot of my um, the sort of image that I had in my head of improv was quite influenced by you know things like Michael Scott in the office going to his improv classes ah, right, and uh, okay. Tobias and Arrested Development and you know that okay. that kind of thing. Okay. Um, the guy that so, brings a gun in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I brought a gun so, into the scene. That's the end of that. Yeah. That's yeah. It's how not people, to do it. P- people being ridiculous and annoying. But in saying that, you know, I was aware that it also did have this history. Um, and like a lot of successful comedians had gone through that training. Um, so basically, when we started the project, I was just looking at 
everything and anything to do with humour. I was looking at you know, comics because that's what I was interested in. Yeah. I was looking at stand-up. I was looking at um, again, yeah, improv and, and things like that. And to begin with, basically, we just got a bunch of student volunteers who were working on design projects, and I just tried out a whole load of stuff with them. I just used them as guinea pigs. And I tried lots of different kind of workshoppy type things with them, getting them to generate ideas. And some of those were based on improv. And those were the ones that just, they got the most positive feedback. People seemed to really enjoy them. And from my perspective, they seemed to be the ones that were helping people not necessarily generate more ideas, but just generate a different kind of idea from what they would have otherwise. Um, so we just kind of followed a trail, essentially, and it, it took us to where we are now. Okay, and is that? Do you think that's because when you kind of the idea of, of improv is that the when you're doing something like that, the pressure's off. You're not trying to kind of you're not being given a problem to solve, so to speak. You're just thinking in a more freeform way. Yeah, I, well, I think I think what it was doing was the way I kind of see it is I think it's helping people to access ideas that are already out there that are in their heads but they're maybe not saying out loud or exploring for whatever yeah. reason because people feel inhibited or they feel self-conscious so i think these ideas were already there but it's more i think the improv process it just makes people feel freer to say them and then also this idea of having to build on each other's ideas you know like we talk about brainstorming as being this really sort of free liberating creative process but in brainstorming yeah. you're told that it's you should try to build on ideas, but it's not compulsory. So if it's not compulsory, then a lot of people will still sort of steamroller each other and, yeah. you know, still come in with their own agenda. But by following this improv process, people were forced to put that aside and they had to just go with what their teammates were saying. And I think then that's when it took the ideations in slightly different directions than what it would have otherwise. Yeah. I mean, certainly in terms of humour, um, things that I mean, I, I met you in in Oxford uh, this year and 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 went through this this work this open space workshop you did, and there was stuff there that I was really relating to in terms of um, comedy, because the, the it's like in in my background as a stand up comedian, you you could have the argument that writing a joke is solving a problem. It's kind of you're mm. trying to make a connection between two things to cause laughter is the end result and it's kind of like you know the process of design is the solving of a problem and the writing of a joke is to find the funny in is something so it's kind of certainly from that point of view that i i totally see the connection in that there's a i'll, I'll just share with you there's a there's a little exercise that i do when i'm teaching stand-up which is there used to be an old thing called a joke competition that comedy clubs used to run where it was like, what's the difference between blank and blank, or what have blank and blank got in common? And you would have, like, just the random suggestions of what those two things would be, and then the exercise is to try and connect the two of them by way of... I'll give you an example. You'll just let, 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 let us digress. Um, there, was, there was me and a mate of mine, Seymour Mace, in Edinburgh in 2006, and the two suggestions were... Uh, a toaster and the Rolling Stones. So the format of the joke was, what is the difference between a toaster and the Rolling Stones, or what have a toaster and the Rolling Stones got in common? And the one I came up with was, what what's the difference between the Rolling Stones and a toaster? The Rolling Stones didn't write a song called Sympathy for the Breville, which I thought was genius. But then, <laughs> yeah, and then, but then my friend Seymour Mace came up with a with a better one, which was. Uh, what's the difference between a toaster and the Rolling Stones? 
nobody murdered anyone by throwing Ronnie Woods in the bath, which was funny. Yeah. <laughs> and and that kind of it's it's I mean that's I'm though that's a I'm, maybe I'm going off at a tangent, but to my mind that is. You, you're kind of improvising because you've literally just been given two suggestions that you've then got to work with and it's not necessarily about being funny it's about the process mm, would mm-hmm. you agree it's about the process of kind of solving the problem to create and think you know in terms of because you are brainstorming at that point you're kind of going okay toaster and then thinking of all the various associated words of it and does that does that make sense does that yeah kind no of... definitely I mean I think that's that kind of thinking is, is where this all came from in the beginning was this idea that a sort of funny joke is kind of similar to an innovative product in that sense like you said it's taking two things that might seem incompatible at first but then if you use a certain type of logic and combine them it creates something yeah. which is really on funny or in our case you know really um, novel and useful and exciting um, so our thinking was you know okay, if we're saying that sort of jokes or funny jokes are a little bit like creative products, let's look at the kind of processes that comedians use to create funny jokes. Could we follow similar processes to create innovative product ideas? So it's not necessarily about, in fact, it's not really about creating funny product uh, product ideas at all. Um, it's more just about following that process and yeah, it's the actual, seeing what comes out of it. The thinking process with which that, that comes about. Um, mm. Because so, you you put me onto um, when when cause stuff that I'd never heard of before but made perfect sense. There was like the Barry Kudrowitz in MIT. Yeah, yeah. He did. Um, what was the workshop he did? It was was it design comedians and designers. Yeah, I think it was improvisers actually. I okay. think he, I think he called them comedians, but I think they were improv comedians um, oh, right. and design students. Got them to brainstorm the same uh, design problem. And then rate each other's ideas. And I think in the end of it, the comedians or the improvisers, they didn't just come up with more ideas than the design students. They actually got their ideas rated as being more creative. So. Okay. Can you can you give us um are you or is it top secret? Can you give us an example of like an exercise or something that you kind of work on at the minute, or there's something that you've worked on as an exercise that you've given students? Or yeah, of course. It, is it confidential? No, it's not really confidential. Um. I think, well, I mean, at the beginning, some of the stuff we were just kind of trying out all sorts of things that maybe more resembled sort of improv games. So we did things like, um, uh, you know, like build a machine where we got uh, the students to make a machine during the sort of improv game. And then they had to somehow sort of retroactively apply that to their design problem. And, oh, and we I did see. things like that. But the kind of the way our sort of research has gone now is we've kind of developed this one single method, which is kind of taken ideas from improv and then applying them more to sort of brainstorming situations so it's okay. all about um you know starting off with yes and and getting people to actually say yes and out loud because we found that with the designers because it's all very new to them and stuff it just kind of helps get people in the right frame of mind sort of so yes and building on ideas building on ideas and then heightening so selecting one unusual idea or picking one from that batch and then asking if then, so the sort of UCB approach of saying if that unusual idea is true, what else could be true about this product and trying to take that as far as they can. It's a kind of, I don't know if that makes sense, Yeah. me explaining yeah. it like that, but um, that's kind of, so it's what's been it's quite structured actually, even though it is improvising. Um, it is, it's kind of a, it's kind of that connection between those two things, you know, you can have, you can have something like, and, and this is again, it's just my brain, 
you know, in PHP programming, you have things called if-then statements. If this happens, then that happens. If this happens, then that happens. Mm. And, you know, that's not too far a leap from yes and in terms of... but it's, And it's the brainstorming process when you've got those little spider diagrammy type things. And, and I kind of sometimes use these when I'm doing my stand-up writing. You, you pick the subject and you write it in the, in the one in the, in the centre and then you branch off and you do another little circle with something related to it and then you, you get rid of the first one and just focus on the second one like you're saying you kind of you do, you do the if then so it is it is kind of connected even though you're kind of having to reset yeah. every few minutes yeah yeah no that's true I think I think I probably I probably do a similar thing when I'm writing comics sometimes you kind of start with a an idea or something you've seen or noticed or something and then yeah you've got to kind of extrapolate I think that's something that I've noticed um with a lot of cartoonists I don't know it's maybe the same with comedians is when you're starting out you tend to not branch out from the initial thing so if you quite often a sort of um common thing and I've did it myself as well when I was starting out a common thing with cartoonists is so you have a funny conversation with your friends or a funny thing happens to you yeah. you think that was funny that's going to make a great comic but it doesn't translate to other people because what you've got to do is you've got to really explore that. You've got to think what was the thing about that conversation that was funny? Yeah. How can I then yeah, ask if then or yes and and build on that and really extrapolate it into something which is not just accessible to everyone but also you've, you've kind of got to heighten it as well yeah, you know, to make it funny to the audience. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's yeah. a similar process. And it can be incredibly slight as well. The, the funny mm. thing can be the slightest possible thing. You know, like, I, if I just pick something at random, um, a packet of salt and vinegar crisps where you get to the bottom of the packet and then there's one crisp that's just extra specially covered in flavour, you know, and it makes your kind of cheeks go in, which happened to me once in front of friends, and it was kind of like, I'd put it in my mouth and it's like, oh, because it was like too much salt and vinegar on the crisp. And it was funny, but it's kind of like, oh, how can I translate this funny thing into a moment that I can reuse? And I don't think I was able to because it was just too small a incident to then capture that moment and recreate into a joke. But I think you're right. It's kind of how do you approach that kind of stuff in a way that you can apply it, you know, you can apply it to, to then reuse it as a practical thing. Well, this is a way to find stuff. Do you, when you're doing your comics, are your comics improvised? Are you doing panel per panel or do you plot ahead? Well, nor the sort of normal way I would go about it is it's it's plotted ahead and it's very sort of planned and it goes through all these sort of editing processes from when you first do the wee thumbnails to you then like if it's a longer thing I'll write a script and then even yeah. as you're drawing it and stuff. But I'm also really into improvised comics and I hadn't even realised that it was fully improv until I started studying all this stuff. But um, another thing I do like to do is um, you ever heard of a comic jam? I Which have is, heard of a comic jam. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a bit obsessed with comic jams, and anybody who wants to do a comic jam with me, I'm totally up for it. But um, it's basically where um, you might start with like a one-word suggestion or an image or an object or something, and everybody in the group just draws the first panel to a comic, whatever it makes them think of. Do that for like five minutes, and then pass it to your left. Then you've given a you've been given a brand new comic with one right. panel. And you've got to decide what happens to the second. So basically, you know, you're just passing it around. So it's kind of like an improv scene, but incredibly slow and less sociable because everyone's sitting in silence, like scribbling away. But in the end, 
you get a similar result where you get these stories that nobody would have imagined on their own and some of them don't make very much sense but sometimes you'll hit gold and get something which is fantastic i think i did one of those and i'm just dipping right back into my memory to newcastle comic art festival in 1997 which is a long time ago and i think we did one of those i think one of the guys ran a comics jam now that you mention it, but the, uh, no one, no one used the words improv at that point. No, no, no. It's, it's only it's only been since doing this project that I've realised. Oh, that's what we're doing when we're doing those comics, those comic jams. It's improvising. Yeah, when and and uh, uh, something in in prepping my notes, because um, I I do comics. I don't really talk about it because this podcast is more about improv. But obviously, we've, we're on the subject. Um, when I was a kid, I did comics. Um, and I literally would start at the beginning of the page, drew a panel, draw something that happened, drew the next bit, drew the next bit, drew the next bit, and it just went. And when it went off to the page, I just got a new bit of paper and started again. And, and, it's, and I would never have called it improv because that was just a kid's imagination when you're young. But obviously that's the bit we're trying to get back to when we teach improv is the, the, the sense of play and that sense of just organic process of, of, of creating and yeah. not, not putting any pressure of expectation on yourself. Yeah, I remember my brother, um, when he used to make comics when we were kids, he would draw the speech bubbles before he put the text in, and then he would Excellent. just keep extending them and extending Excellent. them. So people would have these like multiple speech <laughs> bubbles coming out, and they're, just, oh, they're going to say this, and they're going to say this. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, I'm going to counterpoint this then. Oh, I'm going to use a fancy word as well. Um, if if you're doing this, the, the going back to the research stuff that you're doing, mm. if you're applying improv to it, how then do you measure what it is you're doing? How do you measure the outcomes? Is it just an organic process or do you have a particular set of whatever you call them, metrics in order to establish how to get where you're going, so to speak? Yeah, well, that's kind of the stage we're at just now. Actually. I mean, so far, because it's, it has been a very organic process so far, and like I said, we started with a completely open brief, not really sure where we were going with it. Um, and so far, it's been a kind of mixture of feedback from the participants and my own field notes and observations and recordings and things like that. So it's been very sort of qualitative so far. But that is the kind of stage we're at now is that we would like to apply this under not, I wouldn't quite say controlled settings because you can never do something fully controlled with this kind of thing, but, you know, slightly more controlled settings where we could actually measure some sort of output. Um, and I think there's quite a few different ways you can do it. There are things like creativity metrics and stuff, but um, I find they tend to be designed more for measuring the final outcome. So measuring the creativity of a product, whereas it gets a little bit more complicated with improv because people are just stating very short ideas. You know, if somebody just says yes and the casing is green, that's one idea. But how do you really measure the creativity within yes it's green you know it's yeah. like a it's like a valuable contribution but it gets a bit messy when you try and measure the value of that one particular statement you know especially when it's so fast-paced and the ideas are supposed to be all of these kind of ideas flying out so i've kind of been trying to look at alternative ways to kind of say well what is the value of this um is it just the sheer quantity of ideas or the quality of ideas or is there more to it? I mean, what I've found really interesting uh, from going through this process is all the other stuff that's been coming out of it as well as the final outcome. You know, yeah. things like I've noticed um, people seem to contribute more equally to the discussion when it's improv, even okay. though um, everybody's open to speak at any time. I think because it feels more like a game 
It's yeah. kind of like people feel like they're juggling balls in the air and they've got to keep them all in the air. So people feel the need to kind of jump in and keep things going. Um, things like, uh, obviously, there's not really any criticism at all in any of our workshops that we've done because it's just not that kind of environment and there's not really any time for people to be criticising each other because they're supposed to be constantly contributing ideas. Yeah. Um, and even just, yeah, just the kind of ideas that are coming out of it, you know, they're much bolder, more exciting, things like that. So I don't know whether, like, just measuring the creativity of the outcomes would really give you a true picture of, you know, what you'd be getting out of doing something like this. Yeah, so that that's kind of, I mean, in, in terms of, if you're saying those are some of the other outcomes, because obviously in, in, in my limited experience, I would assume that stuff... When you when you're outside of that in a traditional environment, you have things like you have things like clients to please and stuff like that. Everybody wants to have their opinion. Mm. Is that is that is that a thing where it's kind of like, but I wanted like this, but I wanted like that, and and the, the hierarchy. You say there's no hierarchy there because everyone's working equally, and is is that is that must be valuable because I would assume when there is hierarchy, it's kind of like who makes the decision, and if everyone's making decisions, then that there is less yeah and and kind of you know less 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 individual assertion of who you know who wants to be right so to speak there is no right there's just what works and then the next thing yeah yeah i mean don't get me wrong but you will still get occasionally people who will say yes and and then just say something completely unrelated that they want to say you know i think that's always going to happen but it, it, it happens less often i think it's much more difficult for one person to dominate the conversation the way this works, you know? So even though yeah. it is more structured, I think for maybe people sort of who would typically be lower down in the hierarchy, it is a lot more liberating and giving them more of a voice. At least that's what it seems like so far. And when you do this work, when you do this research that you do, how many people would you usually have in one of your groups? Um, it's kind of we've we've done it with all sorts. Um, usually, it's been between four to six, and I think that's when it works best because people get a chance to sort of build a rapport. There is more chance for everyone to get a say and contribute, but there's also enough people to kind of keep the momentum going and have enough people contributing ideas. Um, the craziest one I've ever run was um, at a cycle hack event. I don't know if you know okay. about design hacks where people get together over a weekend and just sort of blast a design project and do loads of prototyping. And there are loads of fun just, you know, for a chance for networking and exploring ideas and stuff. But there's one that happens in Glasgow every year where people who are into cycling get together okay. and come up with ways to promote cycling in Glasgow. Um and I ran a workshop at that, and I think there was about 40 people. Um, so we kind of did it like a Kaylee. I don't know if you've ever did Strip the Willow. Do you know uh, what that I've is? Never heard of, I've heard of a Kaylee, but I've never heard of Strip the Willow. Well, Strip the Willow is a Kaylee dance which involves um, people um, in groups of eight where once you've done your little round of dancing, um, half a group then moves on to another group in a sort of clockwise direction. So you're constantly swapping groups and swapping people. So it was sort of a quick design improv where people were generating ideas as a group and then I would ring a bell or something and then half the group would move on to another group and then okay. get joined by another one. And it was just like, and people were just like writing stuff and post-it notes and flinging them in the air and there was rubber wow. chickens involved and stuff. And that was 
mental. That's um, insane. That's wonderful. And I think for that context, it was brilliant and it was good fun and they got a lot of ideas out of it. Um, but obviously, you got to tailor it to the to the con the right context. And okay. It might not work quite as well in a sort of stuffy engineering office on a Monday morning. I don't know. Is, is so strip the willow? Is that is that the terminology for people moving from one group to the next? Uh, no, that's a particular dance. Oh, it's the no, dance. Sorry, sorry, did I say strip the willow? I meant um, that's terrible. It's I meant a uh, dashing white sergeant. Dashing white sergeant. Yeah, oh, right, you yeah, wouldn't... I've heard I've heard of the yeah. dashing white sergeant. Yeah, okay. Ah, do, you wouldn't believe that I've been doing the dashing white sergeant. Yeah, that. I can't believe I've been doing Kaylee dancing since I was like five years old or something. I just got the name wrong. That's terrible. Well, we've corrected it. It's all good. <laughs> So, mm, um, yeah. what what are your kind of with the research that you're doing? What are your kind of do you have any end goals? Do you have anything planned in the future, or where you're going to take it? Yeah, um, well, this is a very short project. It's only eighteen months, and okay. we're twelve months into it, so it's kind of coming to an end. That's where we're kind of now at the stage where we've got this design improv method. It's sort of been validated to a certain point and we want to take it into a few companies and like I said try and sort of test it under slightly more controlled conditions and get some sort of conclusion out of it I guess but then hopefully fingers crossed um, the idea is to then uh, get a little bit more funding um, promote it a little bit better and also kind of develop it into something which can be used more widely so at the moment it very much relies on having a facility me essentially relies on having a facilitator there who knows what they're doing can guide people through the process but obviously there's limitations with that Mm -hmm. which I guess is the case for a lot of applied improv stuff because it is so reliant on having the right facilitator there yeah, yeah. I was I was just talking in one of the one of the the previous interviews I've done about it's like I've only come across the term applied improv in the last in the last year or so, and it's kind of like as as an emerging thing that is defined, so to speak. Um, I've always you know I've heard of improv for a long time, but it seems like applied improv is a term that is I, I don't know if it's recent or or not recent or just not as well as not as well known but it, 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 you know certainly the the applied improv network the work they're doing is really good in terms of promoting this as a as a as a thing so to speak yeah yeah but i mean i think the impression that i got um when i was at the conference in oxford is that a lot of it still does depend on sort of specialist workshops and training courses and sort of very sort of intense sort of one-to-one interactions with someone who's a professional or trained in improvisation to some extent. Yeah. So I kind of some of the, one of the things that I'd be interested in looking at as well, how can you keep the good parts of that but make it more widely accessible, if that makes sense, you know, whether yeah. it's some sort of online resource of some kind that people could use independently without necessarily having to you know put a day aside for someone to come in and run a one-off workshop with them you know how can we create something which could actually be used by companies on a much more regular basis yeah yeah i know that yeah i totally get that i mean part of the reason part of the reason to just put content out there saying this is work that people are doing you know, as just as a as a as an advertising thing, really, to just say this is people talking about this is people who work in improv talking about the work that they do. Um, I'm just going to digress mm. a bit more and talk about your comics then, because um, I am interested in the comic mm, stuff sure. that you're doing. What is the, what's the comic that you work on? Does it have a, it has a title? 
Um, well, my own stuff, I kind of tend to do sort of one-off shorts. So probably the best known book that I've done, I had a book that came out a couple of years ago called The Beginner's Guide to Being okay. Outside. And it's probably the most successful thing I've done, and it's probably the least humorous thing I've done, actually. It was a slightly more serious story um, about a, t- a teenager sort of experiencing nature and wildlife and that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing which I do in Glasgow is I run a group called Team Girl Comic, which is a women's cartoonist okay. collective. We've been running that for about seven years now, and what we do is we bring out anthologies of our work. It used to be three times a year, now we just do one big bumper summer issue, and that's just like collections of short stories, mostly humorous, but other some people do more sort of serious stuff, autobiographical, that kind of thing. My stuff tends to yeah, be quite okay, silly. That, that's really cool. So yeah, just going back to what you were saying earlier on with, in terms of your comics, um, how much is scripted and how much is just kind of running with the idea? Usually it's scripted, um, at least to some extent. It depends what it is. I mean, if it's just a little literal sort of short comic strip, you know, three or four panels, I'll maybe scribble something barely legible in my notepad and then just go for it. Um, But if it's a longer thing, which is going to be, you know, four pages long or even 20 pages long, then I will go through at least some sort of scripting process of, you know, beginning with just sort of scribbled notes, um, a kind of more structured script, and then I'll do the sort of panel layouts and things, and it kind of changes with every stage, you know, even to the, with yeah. the point where you're inking over the pencils that you drew, you can still end up changing yes. things or editing the script and stuff. It's always changing up until the last yeah. moment. Um, even with the power of Photoshop, you can still change things after it's all been, you know, yeah. drawn and scanned yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, but, yeah it's that uh, point that's kind of like, when are you happy with it? Is it in its final form? Um, and that's the that's the other question I was going to ask you. Do you do pencils underneath, or do you just go straight to inks? Because um, I I've been trying to work quicker in some of the stuff that I've been doing, so I've been challenging myself. And I even went back to life drawing a few months back. Um, with it, and oh, because yeah. the whole point was when I did, I I find that because I get so kind of caught up, I'll go really finite with a the script i don't spend as much time on if i'm doing stuff i've just done this present yourself book but anyway um i'll do the pencils and keep the pencils really tight and then keep the inks really tight and i needed to loosen up so i went to the life drawing class bought the biggest thickest bits of charcoal i could and just great bits of paper because i remember an old art lecture of mine and and it's very much about kind of you you just just commit to the line and you just draw it so it's kind of like you can't fix it once you've done it because it's charcoal and once it's down it's down and you can work with it to a degree but it's all about it's a confidence thing it's kind of like you know when you're being really light with your pencils it's kind of like you can start with the pencils really light and then when it's just about right you work it in a bit more um and and just little exercises like getting confident with lines and going straight to inks so it's kind of like when you go straight inks, it's kind of like when you lay the line down on the page, that is commitment and, and learning how to just kind of, you know, not necessarily improvise, but it's kind of whatever this is going to be, this is going to be, and I can't fix it. I can't undo it. Like, that's, that's you know, when you work in Photoshop, it's kind of like there is no level of commitment at all because you can change, you can change anything mm. and everything. But if you have a bit of paper and an ink pen, it's kind of whatever happens is going to happen and you can't go back on it. You know, and and I I I like that level yeah. of uh, what I call it risk, maybe risk. So yeah, I was just I was just interested yeah. in your view on, on on that in terms of how you work. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think it is a confidence thing and it is something, yeah, I'm exactly the same, trying to build up my confidence so that I can, if not go straight to ink, but get to ink quicker and ink more quickly as well. Um, I mean, at the moment, what I do is um, I use a blue pencil to do, not still fairly rough sort of sketches Mm -hmm. underneath. And then I go, so I've not, when I'm going in with my ink over the pencil, it's not an exact replica. I'm still adding details and changing things and stuff at that stage. Um, and then in Photoshop, I, I do a little bit of cleaning yeah. up. Occasionally, occasionally I'll fix things, but not very much. And I just kind of go with it. And I think if you you can agonize over something for so long and you never get anything out there, and I think you've just got to keep making yeah. stuff. You know, if something if you make something and it's not perfect just put it out anyway and start working on the next thing rather than yeah, agonizing yeah, over it. Yeah, and yeah, so you... like I do, I'm very impressed by people who can create, you know, amazing, you know, digital comics where everything's done on a tablet and it looks really slick and stuff. But for me, just personally, for me, I just feel it wouldn't feel authentically mine in the same way that it does when you, when you hand yeah, create something. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a, there is a definite, quality to the actual physical item than there is just working digitally and it's I, I will move between the two and sometimes in nice halfway houses I will put the pencils down physically then scan the pencils then ink digitally and and some, some, some even mm-hmm. then it's not a strict level of commitment because I can even um, draw a head in one place and a hand in the other and an arm somewhere else and the leg somewhere else and then effectively skeleton them together when I put them into photoshop but that. Although a lot of cartoonists do that, um, I remember I remember actually going to uh, um, Quentin Blake. Oh yeah. Exhibition because I used to because uh, my husband's a cartoonist as well and um, I used to always slag him off because if he drew a face and he didn't like the way it looked, he would draw another face on another bit of paper and cut it out and like stick <laughs> it on. And um, I, I used to, that's a horrendous way to work. You can't do that. That's awful. And then we went to a Quentin Blake exhibition at uh, Kelvin Grove yeah. Museum in Glasgow and he'd done the exact oh, wow. same thing. There was loads of like hands that just were like, you know, tipexed over or like another bit of paper and stuff. And actually like, I've noticed when I've been to see exhibitions, some other cartoonists and stuff, it's, surprisingly common for people to you know they're not perfect these people they still had to do edits and yeah cut and paste a wee bit but more old school style so there you go cool fascinating um well i think that we'll 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 wrap it up there we've kind of covered design and we've covered art we've done art and design just done the design bit first um is there anything you're working on at the minute or any comics that coming out that you want to kind of promote or push or talk about um, I just had a comic out quite recently called Adam and Jill's Trivia Game. If you want to check out my comics, it's uh, jillhatcher.com. That's Jill with a G. Um, and I guess if you're interested in the research, um, probably the best thing to do is just um, Google me plus Strathclyde and my name will come up and you can find all my contact and, details and there. And links in the podcast notes on the website as well. So all that information will be there to collect. Jill Hatcher, thanks so much for coming on and having a chat. I feel like we covered loads of stuff there. Um, really good to chat to you. Thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you. Cool.
For more interviews, visit the bringabrickpodcast.com website. While you're there, you can also sign up for the mailing list and send me your comments and recommendations. And if you like what you've heard, please do rate and review. Every click does help.